You are now listening to the September 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and It's Time to Pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is my Father's, to my Father's glory, that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That's from John 15, seven through eight. I'm Alan Heller, I'm with Polly. Hello. And we are walking our talk today, and we're starting a series on discipleship and disciple making. And so, uh, as we look at that verse that Jesus spoke, he said, uh, we will be showing ourselves to be, our, be disciples when we bear fruit and glorify God. So we're going to first talk about, Paulie, what is a disciple and what a disciple is not. And of course, we grew up in an era where we came to know the Lord. We had uh, tremendous conversion experiences and then got right into Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called CREW, which is an international ministry with over 15,000 staff and associate staff around the world. And their whole purpose was to fulfill the Great Commission, which I had no idea even what that was when I first... <laughs> I, it took me about three years to understand. They all were talking about the Great Commission, the Great Commission. Uh, I just had never heard of anything like that. How about you? Well, that's for sure. I mean, you and I both grew up in, in Jewish families, and so to have a Great Commission, it's like, wow, why haven't I heard of this before? Right. <laughs> So, uh, of course, the Great Commission is uh, in Matthew at the end of the book where it says that he's given us all authority and power to go make disciples. And um, so, at any rate, I just thought we'd talk about what a disciple isn't before we talk about what he is. A disciple is not just sitting around talking over coffee about news, sports, and weather. It's not an intellectual experience where we just learn a bunch of things or a bunch of theology that it's just in my head. It's not one person doing all the talking and the other person listening and taking notes. In other words, it's not this teacher-pupil, but it's only a one-way kind of relationship. It actually is two-way, but the disciple would entrust himself to the teacher it's not a program. I think lots of people have programs, and there are great ministries, Campus Crusade, Navigators, InterVarsity, all kinds of discipleship ministries. And it's not like you do a program of 13 weeks and then you're done being a disciple. A disciple is something that happens over time and over your lifetime. It's not only done by one-on-one, 
relationship. It's done in a group. Jesus had his John, who was his beloved, and he had three, and he had 12. Even one of those didn't make it, so that really gives me hope that even in the midst of God, the God of the universe walked on this earth in a body, and his name was Jesus, and he chose Judas, who, of course, uh, turned on him. And then he had the 70, and he had 120 and 50. Um, so the Bible describes disciple in a little broader sense than maybe we do in our Western culture. And it's not just sitting down and have a Bible study. And yet all those components that we just talked about of what it's not, there are components of that in disciple making. What is a disciple? It's one who is trained or taught, somebody who's under somebody else's authority and tutelage, um, somebody that's just a learner. We're going to talk about our experience of being discipled and the people that we have discipled in the context, of course, hopefully uh, from a biblical perspective. So tell me, what was your first experience in learning about being a disciple? Well, when I came to know the Lord, Alan, as you know, I, coming from a, a Jewish background at the age of 22, I had never even read the New Testament. I knew very little about Jesus other than what I saw in the culture around me and from just hearing the gospel that brought me to the Lord. But I, I really didn't know what his teachings were. I didn't know what it meant uh, to walk with him. I knew nothing about the Holy Spirit and the but way— But, like, when you, when you heard somebody say—like, did you hear somebody say, do you want to be a disciple, or when did you first hear about that word and what did it mean to you? Well, the interesting thing about the way I came to know the Lord is that the— a couple of people who were very influential in my life in bringing me to the Lord were also very committed to discipleship. And so I immediately got involved, not just in going to church, but in being part of a small group with a couple of people who were very interested in helping me grow in my faith and walk with the Lord and learn some very specific things about what it means to be a Christian and to walk very seriously in the power of the Holy Spirit and to make Christ really the center of my life. And so I started going to uh, group meetings with Campus Crusade for Christ, but I also was in a small group with a young woman who was about the same age as I was. But and how long had she been a believer? <laughs> Maybe a, a month longer. Oh, she was mu really a <laughs> real, was, much more disciple than was, you were. Yeah, she was a brand new believer, but she too was very zealous for Christ, and she had somebody who was teaching her how to lead a small group and, and the things that she very specifically needed to focus on with her small group. So again, when we got together as a small group, we weren't just sitting around talking about our lives and um, 
I, I mean, we did a little bit, but it, it was, was all very, about spiritual it was very stuff focused. And what does it mean to be a Christian? We were learning very specific things. Yeah, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you love God? How do you pray? How do you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? And those kinds of things. So, but you also were in a family environment. You were staying with a family, or you spent a lot of time with the Trowbridges. Well, I I visited with them a lot. Uh, But you saw these people who were so committed to the Lord. Right. And prayer and study of the word and meeting with other people and pouring their lives out as well as opening their home. I mean, it was a lifestyle. It wasn't just sitting down and learning things. And of course... The word says we need to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. So we we need to learn knowledge, but Scripture says knowledge puffs up. But um, when we are walking with the Lord, we walk in humility. And so it's not just knowledge. It's the application of the knowledge of the word uh, to life. Right. Well, and from the beginning, the when— when Christ came into my life, Christianity and going to church wasn't just an add-on. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, I'm taking up a new hobby mm. or I'm taking a class. Or an aside. Yeah. It, it wasn't something that I added. It was something that completely overhauled my life. That It became my life. Christ became my life. And what I was learning from the start was how to let the Spirit of God and the Word of God rule and reign in my life and in my heart and in my mind and how to fill my life with the thoughts of Christ and the the words of Christ and the ways of Christ, how to live according to what he wanted me to do rather than just, okay, now I'm going to go to church on Sundays and I'm still going to do everything else that I do with the rest of my life and tack on this little Christian box to it. It was learning how to let Jesus um, rule and reign in my life and how to, uh, I mean, it's a lifelong <laughs> process, but it was so much change at the very beginning. There were so, so how much how many months or how many years before you started to understand what it meant to be a disciple? Wow, that that's an interesting question. It it was something that I started learning from day one, mm-hmm. practically, and you know here I am, forty what five six years later, still learning it really. But I would say the main things that I needed to learn probably took me five or six years. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a 13-week class. No. And then you became a disciple. <laughs> no, and along the way, as when you talk about discipleship, it's not just about teaching and learning. It's about walking alongside, and it's about tending to somebody. I, I was thinking about this this morning because I've been away from home for uh, three and a half weeks, and I— got back home and I noticed that in our backyard there were (laughs) some plants that had just taken over. And I thought, wow, um, these plants are kind of like a disciple. 
they are going to grow. Whether they're being tended or not, they're going to grow. And they were, like we have these lantana plants that have these little tiny flowers on them. And they're, they grow kind of like trees, like as tall as trees, but they're really just a vine. And they just sort of snake around all the other plants seeking the light. And wherever they come out into the light, they bloom with I know, these they're pretty, really pretty. Pretty That's flowers. That's why your husband didn't cut them down. I thought <laughs> they were pretty. They were just taking over the whole backyard. Crawling everywhere over the yard. And I thought, these things really need to be cut back. And it, the more I cut them back, the more I realized they need to be cut back farther and farther. And without cutting things back and without directing their growth, they're just kind of going to go wild. They're going to go everywhere. And I thought how a discipler's job is to direct the, a person's growth in accordance with the master gardener's plan so that as a new Christian, I don't get off on palm reading or superstition or, or some half-truth that I think, oh, well, this looks good. You know, maybe I should learn a little bit about fortune-telling. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, that's not what, God's, what God wants for you. You know, as your discipler, I want to direct you so that you understand that God has things written in his word to tell you how he wants you to live. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to give you the power and the wisdom to live that way. And you need somebody walking alongside of you saying, no, you're getting a little off track here. Let's go this way. Right. So I think of John 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So when you're pruned, you end up bearing more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And somebody has said that that word means abide, means to make my home. Um, in the Old Testament, it would be to pup tent amongst the people. So it's making my home with the Lord. Let me read some other scriptures, a book that I read called The Lost Art of Disciple Making. It says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. So there is a fruit bearing, and we'll talk about that later. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So evidently, there is an element of teaching and knowledge that goes into disciple-making because he said, you really show yourselves to be my disciples if you keep my commandments, the words that I say to you. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And for you and I, that was just an amazing experience at the beginning of our conversion. We asked the Lord into our life, and that's the first step to being a disciple is you need to be a believer, not just go to church, not just do the things that a d disciple does, but your heart has to be toward the Lord. And again, we'll talk more about that. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, and of course, 
that word in America, we take hate as, oh, my gosh, we're not supposed to like our mom and dad. But he says, honor your father and mother in another place. And Jesus said, take care of my mother on the cross. So right. it's not really hate. It's just giving you an example compared to the love that you have for Jesus. You must hate your life and your father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers, his sisters. Yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. So we have a cost of discipleship, which is to forsake any other entanglement in this life except Jesus. And going along with that, father and mother thing, you and I both, again, coming from Jewish families, making our decision to follow Christ and to be his disciples meant disappointing our own parents Mm. who were Jewish and who didn't understand not only why we would walk with Jesus, but why we would get so religious in the first place. Because even though they were Jewish, they were still pretty secular mm-hmm. in, in in many of their priorities, and they wouldn't they couldn't understand why we would want to go into a ministry where we weren't going to make money and have security. We had to make choices that went against what their lifestyle was and what their plan for us would have been in order to follow Christ. Right. And so another Luke 14.33 says, In the same way, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And so, I mean, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. He's a learner. He wants to bear fruit um, both in his character as well as seeing other people come to know the Lord. And um, just it's important to realize that those who are believers in Jesus, when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, there were many disciples. He called a lot of people disciples. It's not like you're a first class and then there's a second class. And I think it's sometimes in America we tend to separate. You know, you get evangelism and then you have discipleship. And really what Jesus taught was when you come to know me, you must count the cost and be willing to follow me. And as you read in the Gospels, the disciples who were fishermen, they were common men who dropped their nets after seeing all that Jesus was doing and said, I want to follow you. So we'll talk more about that as we go along. Um, Some of the characteristics of a disciple, attitudes, what are the attitudes you'd look for? Uh, What actions would demonstrate that this is a man or woman who's going to be a disciple? And I remember, uh, and we'll go, we'll, in the next podcast, we'll talk about the story of how I came to know the Lord and then was able to be discipled by um, a man that was on our campus that really there was only two years that we had time with each other, but it literally changed my life and helped me know what the cost was of discipleship. And, you know, Jesus fasted, prayed, and asked God, give me certain people, and he chose people. And so one of the things uh, that we need to realize is that there's a 
somebody will choose to help disciple you. And unfortunately, in the church in these days, uh, there's very little discipleship going on, a lot more evangelism because discipleship is a messy, (laughs) it's a messy process and takes a lot. And it just, it's harder because you have to really get involved with a person. That's right. And do things with them and watch them not do the right thing and help correct and... And confront. Right. And certainly Jesus did that. I think of Peter when he said, I will not forsake you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. How would you like that for a disciple? So next time we'll talk a little bit more about my personal journey and what are the characteristics of a disciple. It's been fun talking and getting this series kicked off on disciple. What is a disciple and discipleship? You enjoying it, Polly? I am. Having a great time? Yes. All right. So we'll see you next time when you walk your talk. If you want to get any materials or see our website and pick up some podcasts, other podcasts on our Marital Mystery Tour, our trust book, just go to walkandtalk.org. Just spell it out, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K.org. And we'll see you next time as you walk your talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is There's No Escape, based on Jonah 1.17 through 2.10. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This morning we're going to see that there is no escape in Jonah 1.17 to 2.10. Now, just as we saw last time, in 2 Kings 14... Uh, we find that Jonah was a historical prophet. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was a king that reigned during a time of prosperity and growth in the nation. They were able to actually expand the borders uh, back over the territories that had been taken by Syria. And it was a time where they had a lot of freedom to grow economically. Things seemed to be going well. But we also find while the country seemed to expand its borders, simultaneously we are told that it was a a reign that so much like the other kings of Israel was characterized by God's voice saying, and yet this king Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this was a king who had followed the sins of his fathers in leading the nation in idolatry. It was a sinful nation. Israel was not pursuing God. And even though this letter really is about Nineveh, as we're going to see next chapter, it is for Israel. And it's important for us to remember that. That Israel needed to hear this message about God's intentions. Now, if God announces judgment on Nineveh for their sins, don't you think that the king of Israel, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, should be humbled by this letter? See, Jonah isn't ultimately about a great fish, about a great prophet, but it's ultimately about our great God. So we want to see what it is that Jonah has to say to us about God this morning. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this. If you're writing notes, this is our big idea. It's that... God is not safe, but he's the only sovereign who saves us from death. Our God is not safe, but he is the only sovereign who saves us from death. We're going to see that this morning in a couple of ways. So first, our sovereign God is not safe. We see this in a couple of different ways. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read a good book about how to read a book. That sounds clever, right? Like, before I read, I need to read how to read. And I think that's a good way to read books of the Bible. I think it's a good way to read Jonah. I think it's a good way to read Jonah 117 to 210. See, as you read those verses, the way that these verses begin and end, in the the Hebrew Bible, this text actually begins in 117. That's where chapter 2 begins. And it ends in 210. And I think that it's because he's trying to shape for us, he's trying to set out for us the way that we should interpret what's going on in between. And so you'll notice that in 117, we are told there, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then if you drop down to 2.10, you'll notice that he says this, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. See, Yahweh, Israel's covenant-keeping God, he appointed that fish. He appointed the fish to swallow up Jonah, where Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of that fish. Now just Take that in for a second. Think about this. God willed, destined this fish to eat Jonah. God willed Jonah to get eaten by a giant sea monster. But here we find an image of a terrifying beast unlike anything that rivals an episode of Catching Monsters. It is a a huge, massive water beast that comes and swallows up Jonah. And so your mind, your imagination, I'm sure just runs wild with what must have happened in that moment. Think about it. I mean, was it a fish or was it a whale? I mean, did they have those categories? 
Did he breathe when he was in this fish? Did he live on sushi while he was living in it? And what did those gastric juices do to his skin? Commentators talk much about these things. But that doesn't seem to be Jonah's concern here, the book of Jonah. See, here's a question that does matter, though. Is Jonah's fish a fish of judgment or a fish of salvation? Now, that's an important question. See, the natural answer seems to be, when you read this, judgment. I don't know any of us at first blush, when we would read this text, would say, Oh, Jonah got eaten by a fish. I want that kind of mercy in my life. Judgment. Natural answer. And just rehearse the situation of Jonah 1. It makes sense. Jonah disobeyed God. He ran from God. Abandoned his God. As a prophet who was called to speak to a people, he ran away. He went AWOL on God. He sinned greatly. The sailors sacrificed Jonah to the raging ocean to satisfy his God. And the storm ceased, seemingly affirming the judgment of God on this man. The sea and its monsters, they represented chaos in the absence of the presence of God who brings order. And in all of this, it seems that Jonah has faced nothing but judgment. Yet, here, take note. Jonah's God stops the storms and he tames the monsters of the sea. He goes dog whisperer on the chaos of the storm. He says, cease and it is still. He tells the monster of the sea to go and to yield, and he does. I mean, who is this God who is able to have this kind of authority over storms, the seas, and her monsters? I think the picture that we get in this moment is about a greatly sovereign God who is sovereign beyond the vision of the nations and the gods that they have. They had parochial gods who had local authority. And this God, his authority knows no bounds. That's exactly the image that Jonah wants us to have At the very front of this message, God is unrivaled in his sovereignty. There is no jurisdiction in which God is not authoritative. But don't miss this. Everything in this text envisions this fish as salvation, not judgment. See, God turns this instrument of horror into an instrument of his divine grace. This monster becomes a submarine. Did you notice that? He is a huge... Slimy, ugly, stinky submarine. And it's there that God is going to teach Jonah about the magnitude of his power and his authority and his grace. See, God appointed this monster to rescue him and to teach him that there is nowhere to run but God. See, God directed this great fish to teach Jonah that there is nowhere to flee from his presence. God ordained this primordial beast to expose that running from God in sin always leads to death. God sent this creature to show that God is a sovereign creator over the chaotic waters of this life. And even those events, storms, and creatures that seem to run so freely. God is sovereign and free above all others and able. Able to use terrifying circumstances to bring about beauty and life out of death. See, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah to transform Jonah and to use Jonah. So what if God this morning has appointed a great fish for us to swallow you? Not as judgment, but as salvation to bring about some change in your life that would not be brought about except for this great fish. Just think about that this morning. What if God is transforming you in the belly of a fish, 
not only to transform you, but even more to make you usable in the lives of others. To bring God more glory. To do more good to others. See, Jonah's fish came to save him from running from God. God loved him too much to allow Jonah to escape God. Do you get that? He loved him too much to let that happen. And he was willing to go to the uttermost to make sure that that never happened. So as he comes to him, he finds the glory of God in the belly of this fish. Jonah's fish came to save him from running from God. You know, he's the shepherd, God is, who chases after that one sheep. That's the nature of who God is. But when he catches wayward sheep, he also teaches and disciplines them to keep them close to the only good shepherd of their souls. Jonah knew about God's sovereignty. But here, he's experiencing it in real time. Jonah 1, I've got great theology about the creator of heaven and earth. Jonah 2, I'm in the belly of the fish, and I'm seeing it more clearly than ever. But when he catches this wayward sheep, God is changing him. See, in this moment, God's sovereignty, and maybe you've had these experiences in your life, that theology that you spent your whole time learning, maybe even as a child in, in Sunday school, all of a sudden, life hits, and, and all of a sudden, that sovereignty that you've learned about God becomes palpable and visceral in your life, right? You sense it in a new and meaningful way that you never did before. And that sovereignty that, that you always tried to grip begins to grip you in new and powerful ways. And that's exactly the experience that Jonah has in this fish. When I think about this, the nature of God and the way that he works in the people of God. In this way, I'm always reminded of one of my favorite saints. The pictures of a shepherd that she drew with her teeth because she cannot use her hands because she was paralyzed. And she knows that God is sovereign and has no problems at all with believing in a sovereign God who is good and for her. I'm just wondering if God allowed you to be paralyzed, what kind of image would you draw of him? Would you still see him as good? Would you still draw him as a shepherd of your soul who loves and cares for you? You know, she understands what it is to be swallowed up by a fish and to experience those gastric juices and have her attention turned in the only place there is to turn in the darkness of death, and that is God himself. And brothers and sisters, God will take us to fearsome places to see him more clearly. Now, that's exactly what God did in Johnny's life. Now, she's even going through cancer today and, and still yet using her voice to do nothing but to turn attention towards the glory of God. And that is exactly the way that God wants to use Jonah. He wants him to understand what it is to be swallowed. And what it is to love God in that and to meet God in that. And to have his heart changed and transformed so that his perspective is new on the world and everything that he sees. And isn't that true of Jonah? That fish was a fish of mercy in his life. You know, some of you have run from God and God has appointed a great fish for you. A great fearsome fish for you. Some of you experienced prison, divorce, unmet longings for marriage, lost or dead-end jobs, homelessness, the death of a loved one, chronic illness, all horrific experiences. And yet, in the midst of this, could it be that our sovereign God really is at work? Could it be that he's working these things together for your good and his glory? I mean, I know he says that in Romans 8, 28. But do we really believe it when we're in the belly of the fish? You know, it's in those moments, the real question isn't really whether or not God is in control or good. The question is a question of our heart posture towards our good and sovereign God. Will you repent of sin? And will your heart soften to him or will it harden and calcify? Sometimes I wonder what would happen to Jonah 
if he just didn't repent in the belly of that fish? If he just decided to, to let everything just lie? Would he get stuck there? Or some of you, maybe this morning, just stuck in the belly of the fish because we refuse to raise our gaze to the maker of heaven and earth, either for the first time or the first time in a long time. And God is calling us to look to him for what only he can provide. So if you're God's child, just ask yourself, what is it that God's seeking for you even in those darkest places? I think it's more of himself. So seek and find him. Trust Hebrews 12, that every discipline that comes from the Lord is for us as children to draw him, to draw us to himself, to give us more of himself. See, God is at work in the fish that he sends. Great fish invite us to look to our great God. But take note of how Jonah responds in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Here we have a prayer. We see how Jonah's heart has changed. And there what we see is, is that God saves and transforms Jonah's heart in the belly of the monster. Now, the temptation in Jonah is to consider the gastric juices in this fish and how it would have affected his body, those kinds of things. But the book of Jonah is more concerned with what the belly of this fish did to Jonah's heart. See, verses 1 to 9 present a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving, very similar to the thanksgiving prayers of Psalms. And if you read those, you'll notice that they have these elements, that a thanksgiving psalm is going to have a, a summary of an answered prayer a report of a a personal crisis and that rescue, and then a vow of praise. So you'll notice that also verses 4 and 7 end with this vision of the Lord in his temple. So that kind of breaks up the sections in verse 4 and then verse 7, and then those last two verses speak of the salvation of God. But Jonah's prayer tells us about Jonah's heart, and take note of how the perceived crisis of chapter 1 That perceived crisis, God calling Jonah to do something he did not want to do, shifts and changes in chapter 2. His heart changes in crisis and his perspective shifts. His great fear is being driven from the presence of God here. He was running from God and now he is fearful of being driven from the presence of God. Do you see how his heart has changed? See, this great theologian of chapter 1 has been awakened to the weight of the sovereignty of his God. And that perspective has changed the way that he interprets everything. You almost wonder if this is the same Jonah. Well, we'll see this in three different ways. First, notice in verses 1 to 4 that God drove Jonah from his presence so that Jonah would seek him. You can see that in the first four verses of chapter 2. Look what it says. Jonah 2, 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of this fish, saying, I called out to you, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, and yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So take note, that distress over the fact of God's will caused Jonah to run from God in Jonah 1. But distress over the reality of God's sovereignty caused him to run to God in Jonah 2. This distress is characterized as being in the the belly of Sheol in verse 2. Now, Now, Sheol is just the place of the dead. And so this fish is compared to death. The belly of this fish is pictured as what it means to be in the place of the dead. Now, that would make this fish seem to be an instrument of judgment. And isn't it funny how Jonas now sees God at work in his attempted escape? Did you notice that? Like, Jonah was running, and now, like, he's saying that this was God's fault. Notice what he says. He says, for you cast me into the deep, 
in verse 3, speaking of God. And then verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. But he was running from God's sight. And now he understands himself as being driven from God's sight. I mean, didn't the sailors cast him into the sea, into the deep? Wasn't it them that did that? And yet here, why is it that he credits the Lord with it? And then you want to ask Jonah, driven, really? I mean, weren't you running? Didn't you run to Tarshish? I mean, you couldn't get away from God fast enough. Then you went down to Joppa, and then you went down into the boat. And then you find yourself in this pit, this this horrible dark place, as far as you can get away from God. And all of a sudden, you feel like you've been driven from God. You find yourself in a place in life that is dark, and you can't understand why things aren't working well and why it feels like God is against you. And you, you don't remember the fact that you haven't sought the face of the Lord, that you've been disobedient to the Lord, that you've run from him. And that's exactly where Jonah finds himself. And yet here, I believe there's something more. I think what he's saying is, I see God as being with me every step of the way that I ran. See here, catch this. Jonah ran from God and God said, let me help you with that. Let me help you sense what it is to run from me. He sent a great fish to swallow him and a makeshift submarine to carry him as far from God as possible into the utter depths of the sea. And at first glance, this looks like an aquatic hearse carrying him to death. The God of the dead. And that's exactly the kind of image that we have here. It's that death has swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah is literally in the grave and he's going in the utter depths of creation as deep as you can possibly get. See, Jonah sought to escape God's will and God's presence and God took him to the depths of the sea to teach him, Psalm 139, that even if he makes his bed in Sheol, God is there. If he dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there God's hand would lead him and his right hand would hold him. There's nowhere that he could go to escape the presence of God. See, when we run from God, if we are his people, if we are in his covenant, God runs with us. He does not let us go. There really is nowhere to run where God cannot see us, where he does not hold us, where he does not reign. Even the waves and the billows that passed over Jonah were his. It's much like the image of Noah and the flood. In Israel, walking through the Red Sea, that God parts so they can pass through those chaotic waters. See, God saves Jonah through the chaotic waters representing separation from God. God is very present and sovereign over those waters that represented the absence of their God. And take note, great distress drove Jonah to sense the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the sovereignty of God in his life. It was distress that taught him that, that caused him to look at that, to understand that, to know that. And distress in life, it is intended, it ought to drive us to God, not away from God. See, when we have nowhere else to look but God for what only God can do, we find God high lifted up. And where is your distress driving you this morning? I'm sure there are all kinds of distress that are here this morning. And I think that God would just ask you, where is it driving you? Is it driving you to me, to my people, to prayer, to call out to me, to seek my face, to know me, to look to my word, to seek others, to help me speak into my life? Or is it sending you running from God? You know, I think that it should be driving you to hope in God. Take note, the God who drove Jonah out also lifted Jonah up in verses 5 to 7. Did you see that? God that he saw as driving him out also lifted him up. See, our second thing that we see in these verses is that Jonah remembered the God who can bring life from death. That's what he remembered from the belly of that fish. Did you catch the hope of verse 4? 
Jonah, he said, yet I shall again look on your holy temple. I mean, talk about the power of positive thinking. Thinking to yourself in the belly of this fish, the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to be in the temple of the Lord again. I just can't wait to be there. What about you guys? Oh, I'm alone. And yet in this moment, he has hope that enters into this hopeless situation. It's a beautiful picture of the way that the gospel can be at work in our lives. See, Jonah can't see his hand in front of his face in the belly of this fish, but he sees the God, his God, high and lifted up in the temple with crystal clarity and believes that he will be back in his presence in the temple in Jerusalem again. What kind of hope is that? It's not a worldly hope. So how can we dare to believe this? Well, notice what he says in verses 5 to 7. He says, The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. And yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. See, when Jonah was sinking, the fish came and swallowed him and saved him from certain death. That's how he was brought up from the pit. It was in this fish. This fish became like a submarine arc hybrid, rescuing him through death. And his hope was born when he remembered the Lord in that ark. He went down yet deeper to the land whose bars close upon him forever, death. And he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Do you see it? Jonah says he remembered the Lord. He remembered the Lord who is sovereign over even life and death. Now, you know you're in a bad place if the prophet forgets the Lord, right? Like, that's a bad place. If the prophet who is supposed to tell you the word of God has forgotten who God is, we're in a bad place. And so, how is it that he forgot God? Well, see, he forgot the God that commands death to spit his people out on the dry land. Now, I think there are a lot of factors in how we can forget God. Because we can forget God too. We constantly need to be reminded, need to remember who God is. And so how do we remember who God is? Well, I think there are a number of ways. i got five quick ones. The first is, we can forget God when we step away from the Word of God. We need to meditate on God's Word day and night. This would also mean, I believe, stepping away from our need of Christ as the living Word. Now, let me just be super clear. Step away from the Bible and you step away from Jesus. Jesus' Word is heard in the Scriptures. But also, if you step away from the living word, the person of Jesus by faith, and your need of him, then you will step away from trusting the voice of the good shepherd. So step away from the voice of Jesus, and you will step away from the person of Jesus. You can't move towards the person of Jesus without moving towards the voice of Jesus in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Are we together? So if we want to be near Christ, union with Christ, faith with Christ, and feel a sense of him, we need to be in his word. And it is a false dichotomy if you say that you can have one without the other, that you can have Jesus without his voice, or you can have his voice without having him. We need to have and meet with God in his word. Second, stepping away from obeying God's word. I think we all have experienced this. Faithlessness leads to a lack of faith. Faithfulness leads to faith and confidence in God. Disobedience leads to doubt. So we need to trust and obey God's word. Jonah didn't trust and obey God's word. Third, stepping away from the people of the word. It's another way that we can fall away, that we can forget God. See, we need other believers to stir us up towards love and good works as we see the great day of the Lord approaching, as Hebrews 10 tells us. We need to be stirred up towards trusting God's word. Uh, We can forget God's word when we step away from praying the words of God back to him. See, God's word should shape the way that we speak back to him. Our prayer reflects our hearts. 
the things that we long for, that we pray for, that we seek. Your prayers tell you something about how you see God, yourself, and others, and whether or not you have a perspective that is God-shaped. And so we need to make sure that we are praying the Word of God to God. A good way to do that is to start your prayer life by just reading some Scripture before you pray. And letting that Scripture guide the way that you speak back to God. Praying for the things that He tells us that we should pray for. Loving and valuing the things that He values. So do your prayers reflect God's character and his will for us? Well, here's the beautiful thing. If you're getting scared and you're like, am I ever going to learn how to pray right? Well, we're told also that the Holy Spirit helps us pray. Romans 8, 26 to 27, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. It's often true. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And finally, we forget when we step away from acknowledging the pervasive sovereignty of God in all of life, giving him praise and petitioning his help. We need to be reminded constantly that Jesus is king. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of his sovereignty and his goodness for us. But all of these will leave us thinking of ourselves as the the captains of our souls if we forget who God is. But catch this. Hope was born when Jonah's distress led him to seek the face of God in his holy temple full of sovereign glory trusting that he alone was able to lift him from this pit. So distress led Jonah to remember his God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? He's distressed, and then he remembers God. And Maybe that's what God's trying to do in your life. But there's one final thing that we see here, and that's this, that God's salvation from death leads to mission in verses 8 to 9. He finds mission and purpose in God's salvation from death. Notice here, don't miss the change of heart. He says the idols in this verse are no longer to be worshipped. Look there with me at how Jonah re-ups with God. Here's what he says in verses 8 to 9. He said, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, just look at that change of heart. The idols and the God alternatives. They are blind, deaf, dumb, and lead to death. The sailors of Jonah 1 prayed to all those gods except the one true God. And do you remember what happened? Nothing changed when they prayed to those gods. But look how different Jonah's God looks. Running from God, he says, means forsaking the hope of steadfast love. Now, this word for steadfast love, chesed, it actually points to a kind of covenant fidelity that God has for his people. And Jonah announces a renewed intent of heart to hope not in himself, but in his God. Did you catch that? In Jonah 1, he ran for fear of God's will. In Jonah 2, he's hoping in God's steadfast love for his people. That is a change of heart. That's a change of perspective. See, refusing to forsake it again, this love, that is his new heart. His heart shift led to a perspective shift. He's declaring that the ground of his hope is that the God he abandoned will not abandon him. And don't miss this. Jonah fled God, only discover that there's no better place to be And that God will not abandon him. What a beautiful reality. The ground of his hope is that the God he abandoned will not abandon him. Don't miss this. Jonah fled God only to discover that there's no better place to be than the very presence of God. And this is beautiful. From the depths of despair and death, when all seems hopeless, Jonah cried, called out to God. And did you notice that God came running with help? What a beautiful thing. You would think of all people, this is the guy that God gives up on. And yet Jonah cries from the depths of despair 
And God runs to help this prophet. Jonah prayed to God and God saved Jonah. Jonah is only now catching up to the sailors who had sacrificed to the Lord and made vows in chapter 1. And I take this vow, commentators use it in different ways, but it seems to be that Jonah is going to obey God regardless of the cost for him on out. Maybe it's a vow to praise God. Maybe it's a, a vow to obey God in his prophet role. But for sure it means that he's going to keep that first commandment, that he will have no other gods than God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why did he just bring in like this idolatry stuff and this really powerful story about God sovereignly saving him from a fish that looks like death? Well, I think there's a reason. It's because, again, this letter is for Israel. Do you remember? It's really for Israel, even though it's about Nineveh. And you'll remember in 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam II led his people in worshiping other gods, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this should have been a corrective to Israel who thought God had abandoned them when in fact, catch this, they had abandoned God for idols. They should have seen this and understood this. And how would this be impactful to further future generations as they would wonder, why is it that we are under judgment right now? It's because they had disobeyed God and they had pursued other gods that cannot help them like the true God of Israel. See, Jonah made a vow. He will prophesy to the Ninevites as God told him to prophesy. He will praise God to all who will listen. But the main point of this prayer in the fish that may look like judgment comes in the last line. Did you notice how it ends? Salvation belongs to the Lord. The monster of death was actually an instrument of life in the Redeemer's hands. That fish brought Jonah's heart back to the sovereign God who saves. God is not safe, but God is good. But Jonah points to one who is greater, one who is better. See, we don't just need the example of Jonah. We need one greater than Jonah. And in the New Testament, we find that greater one is Jesus. Jesus is the one who not only spent three days in the belly of death, of Sheol, and then was rescued, he is the one who actually can lead us out. See, Jesus says that he is one greater than Jonah in Matthew 12. If you have time later today, you can go and look there. Uh, You'll remember that in that text, he's speaking to scribes and Pharisees. And as he's speaking to them, they're the religious elite of the day. And Jesus says that they need something more than works or religion to save them. See, they were looking for a sign from Jesus that would change their minds about him. They wanted him to impress them so that they could have faith that was anchored to some miracle. And Jesus responds in Matthew 12, 39 to 4, saying this. 12, 39 to 40, he says this. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus didn't just metaphorically defeat death. He didn't just calm the chaotic waters of separation from God. At the cross, he defeated sin, death, and the devil, and also held at bay the wrath of God and absorbed it for us, making for us the only way to God. He is the only way to get to God. And on the third day, he gave us the great sign that we all have to reckon with as humans. He was raised gloriously from the death Jesus lives. He lives to tell the story about how he was raised by God from the death and defeated death. See, Jonah, he survived death, but Jesus defeated death at the cross. Christians can connect with Jonah here very well. See, in Christ, we are saved through the waters of chaos and baptism. Have you ever thought about that when we baptize believers? It is a picture of salvation through judgment. There's a sense in which we are saved by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ is our greater ark. He is the one in whom we go through those judgment waters and yet live. That's why Romans 6, 4, speaking of water baptism, says this. We are buried therefore with him, Jesus, by baptism into death, 
In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see it? We, like Jonah, have been saved from death in Christ. Baptism is a sign that we have been born again and live for the will of God despite our circumstances because we have new hearts. Jonah left that fish vowing to live for God. That's what a sense of the sovereign God who saves us ought to do for us. It should drive us to serve Him with all that is in us. I love the line from John Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace. He was a a horrific sailor, a really horrible guy, who found himself in the midst of distress and a storm that he thought was going to take his life. And it terrorized him so much that he began to think about his relationship with God and Christ, and it led ultimately to him putting his faith in Jesus. And he became a great pastor, even a pastor that was known for being happy all the time. You'll remember he wrote Amazing Grace. And in that song, there's this beautiful line where he says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Same grace. The grace that taught me to fear the judgment of God, the judgment that, that I deserve, and grace that taught me that the only way to find salvation is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Only him can lead me through those judgment waters. If you're not a believer this morning, there is only one way to God. There's only one way to salvation from death. There's only one way to have an answer to the distress that we all face on that last day when we face death, and that is in the cross of Christ and Jesus Christ. And the confirmation that we have is his resurrection that tells us that we can trust that he has done what he ought to do. In fact, the power of the resurrection is seen so clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. I told you that death was pictured as a mouth. Well, it's there in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is meditating on the meaning of the resurrection. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. He says, on that day when Jesus returns, when we are given new bodies, when we are raised from the dead ultimately, when death shall reign no more, he says this. He says, on that day, the saying that was said shall come to pass, will come to pass in this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He says that here, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus was swallowed up in death, and then he walked out. And then the image here is, is that the, the death that swallowed Jesus, Jesus says, guess what? I'm swallowing you death. I am swallowing you up in the victory of what I accomplished at the cross. And that's true for everybody that's put their faith in Jesus. Isn't that a good thing to know that we have hope in the resurrection that we too shall live forever with Christ? That's good news, right? So let's live there and work back. of your love. 
are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com
Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Did you know that we serve a God who revives us? Psalm 119 verse 88 says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The Hebrew word for revive is haya, which means to live again, to regain life, quicken, restore to life, remain alive, and be whole. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Greek word for abundantly is perisos, which means excessive, exceeding measure, beyond what is anticipated, extraordinary, and surpassing. Jesus came in order that we may continuously have life beyond measure. Isn't this a powerful truth? My brothers and sisters, are you currently living this life in Christ Jesus? The first scripture reading is from Psalm 119, verses 24 through 25, 40, and 49 through 50. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. The next scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The last scripture reading is from Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 1 through 6. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put 
breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. My brothers and sisters, let's cry out to God to revive us so we'll live abundant lives glorifying our Savior for what He has done. Heavenly Father, You are the God who fills the eternal realm with glory, whose name is holy. You dwell in high and holy places, but also with a bruised and lowly in spirit, those who are humble and quick to repent. You dwell with them to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of those who are broken over their sin. Lord, we humble ourselves and repent of abandoning our first love, our pride, rebellion, and our sinful ways. Father, please forgive us. You are close to all whose hearts are crushed by pain, and you are always ready to restore the repentant one. Great are your tender mercies and steadfast love. We are covered by your covenant of mercy and love. So we come into your holy presence with deepest awe to bow in worship and adore you, for you are our Redeemer, our life, our vision, and our passion. You bring us a continual revelation of resurrection life, the path to the bliss that brings us face to face with you. Who is like you, O God? The power of your word revives us and gives us an abundant life. Revive us again, Lord, according to your gracious love and righteousness. We'll keep the decrees that you have proclaimed. We can never forget the profound revelations you have taught us. For by them you have revived us and given us life. Father, ignite the kingdom life within us, a fresh fire within us, the Holy Spirit within us to love you with everything we have, all our hearts, all our passion, all our strength, and all our mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, revive our hearts again with your heavenly joy and gladness. Consume us with your eternal word, faithful love, and holy power. Let us walk in abundance of your life and your righteousness, that we may always live to obey your truth. Fill us with your grace to live lives of passionate love. Surrender before your majesty, then we'll experience abundant life, continual protection and complete satisfaction and will live as your army of prayer warriors filled with your power and divine wisdom ascending into the high places and releasing regional breakthrough bringing down the strongholds of the enemy father fill us with your holy spirit and truth so we'll live a lifestyle of true revival, manifesting who you really are through the power of the gospel to the world. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.